glad to be back with you again this Wednesday. Um, the songs were, were beautiful and the prayers were too. I have, I have kind of a lofty goal for our time together tonight. I don't want to be up here too long, but I do plan on starting in Genesis 1 and ending in 1 John 3. So we're going to go from beginning to almost to the very end. And uh, so I need your prayers. I do invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. I figured if, uh, if Jesus could do that on the road to Emmaus, then uh, maybe we could do it in a shorter time. Our text tonight is going to be Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 26 through 31. I'd like to talk about a, uh, a biblical motif or a prominent theme that is, uh, has a continuity from beginning to end. Uh, that being the, the image of God in man. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we begin, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast... Of the earth, into every bird of the heavens, into everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Man in the image of God. As we read Genesis chapter 1, it becomes uh, rather obvious we see a difference in the way that God created uh, everything else and the way God created man. We notice several distinctions that would point us to the fact that man is unique above creation, as part of creation, but above the rest of creation. The fact that he created man on the sixth day, wasn't, that didn't mean he was tired, and so that's when he kind of messed up. It meant that he waited till the end. He, he created everything, and as he told us in these verses, he created everything so that he could, in the end, after he created man, give it to man to exercise, exercise dominion over, and to give it to man for sustenance. We notice how God says something that he hadn't said in the previous 25 verses, and that is, I'm going to make something in my image. Nothing else that he created in his image. We see that God uh, gives man a primacy uh, over creation. Man wasn't created for Mother Earth, but the earth that God created was created for man. And Jesus even picks up on this and talking about the institution of the Sabbath, that uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath or to obey the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was actually instituted for the benefit of man. Several things in just this immediate passage that we covered in our, in our textual reading shows us something was very special, very different about the way that God created man, being in God's image. At the very end of the passage there, it didn't say, as God had said a number of times already in the first 25 verses, that it was good but that God saw that it was very good. There was something very special about God creating man. So I want to talk about that, that theme in the Bible, the fact that God created man, and he made man to be, as the word at the hermeneutical level means, like himself. What that means, what that doesn't mean. So basically we're going to be talking about biblical anthropology or the nature of man. Before we kind of talk about that, I want to think for just a little while about the corresponding topic of the purpose for which God created man. And of course, this could be just really abstract and, and uh, something that wouldn't be applied at all, but I hope it's not that way at all. I hope we can apply this and realize that we're talking about ourselves, talking about our spouses, our kids, even maybe our, our cantankerous co-workers, that all people are created in God's image. So the corresponding topic with how God created man is going, to be, uh, is going to have light shed on it by thinking about the topic of why God created man. 
God created man in a certain way, certain structure to function in certain capacity. That in that function, man will fulfill the purposes that God made him for. Why did God create man? We know from the pages of Scripture that God didn't create us because he was lonely, right? How do we know that? How do we as Christians know without a shadow of a doubt that God was not lonely? I mean, he was all by himself, right? Well, no. <laughs> God as a whole was by himself. God uh, in the three persons was not alone. Father with Son and Son with Spirit and all three with each other. In John chapter 17, we read about this, this intimacy that the, the Father has with the Son, the Son with the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus even prays for his people that in the end of time they would all be with Christ to behold his glory, the same glory that he shared with the Father before the world began. He talks about the love that he had with the Father and for the Father before the world began. We see God the Father expressing love for Christ at his baptism, speaks out of heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And again at the Mount of Transfiguration. There was this wonderful love that God enjoyed. So it's not God creating man so that he can have fellowship, that is God, but it's actually... But Paul said, we were actually saved and called into the fellowship of God's dear Son. In 1 Corinthians 1.9. So man didn't provide anything for God that he didn't have already. A second reason that is not a reason that God would create man is that God was limited in his own attributes and needed man for any particular reason. Um, on the contrary, God doesn't need us on a daily basis. When we pray to God, when God... When we, when we worship God, God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need the labors of our hands. I wonder how often we actually think that in our minds. You know, we think if we don't get this done, then God's plans are going to be foiled. If, if we don't offer to God what we have, then he's going to be, uh, be uh, in trouble. The fact is, we'll be in trouble, but God won't be in trouble at all. We know this from verses like Acts chapter 17, verse 25. I love how he says that God who made all things uh, is not worshipped by human hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all things life, breath, and all things, or all men, life, breath, and all things. So he gives to everybody everything they have. Gives to all men all things. So God doesn't need man. Jesus himself didn't come to be served, but to serve, to minister. I wonder when we bow in prayer if we have that mentality. That God is waiting for the opportunity, maybe, so to speak, to serve us. And that prayer is a way of God responding to us, leading us to prayer, um, even giving us willingness, all this stuff. We think about God's sovereignty and our, our responsibility. But in prayer, we find God, in the page of Scripture, responding in a way. Um, and doing things, actually unleashing his power on behalf of man. It's not like we stir ourselves up so that we can do great stuff for God, but if our prayers do anything, it's, it's moving God to do great things for us. God would say uh, in Psalm chapter 50 and verse 12, I love this, he says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, because the earth is mine and everything in it. A couple verses later in verse 15, he commands us, you call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. And so man exists for the purpose of, of rendering back to God the praise that God deserves. It wasn't God out of deficiency creating man to supply this. It was actually God out of his fullness. God had myriads of ways, unlimited ways of pleasing himself, of, in, of enjoying himself in the, the community of the Trinity. And one of the ways he did it was to create man didn't have to. There was no law over God binding him to even create us in the first place. And so our responsibility and our purpose is, is rightly then to be rendering God the praise that he deserves because of his fullness. The other side of the purpose for I created us is not just to render unto God glory and praise. You know, give unto God the glory due unto his name. But that we enjoy doing this. That God gets joy out of human beings being created and then fallen human beings being redeemed in order to enjoy God's presence, to enjoy giving praise back to God. There could be nothing more enjoyable than to exist for the purpose of enjoying giving God the praise and admiration he deserves. 
Now, as we think in, in uh, we, there's so many scriptures I have here. I've been doing this rather large study. I'm kind of picking and choosing things I'm going to cover tonight um, on, uh, on a biblical anthropology. And so this is just one little part of it. So I'm going to try not to get too bogged down. Um, but I really do feel confident this is what God wanted me to speak on because, number one, I've been studying it. Number two, uh, the passage I read tonight is one I was going to go to. And then also on the way back from work today, I turned on the radio and heard this, uh, heard, uh, it was AM station, this um, talk show host talking about animals and crazy stories of animals. And one guy called in about cruelty against animals, and he made the statement that he thinks that crimes against animals should be punished just as strongly as crimes against humans. I thought, well, that doesn't fit into biblical anthropology or because man is in God's image and animals aren't. And we'll see that reference here a little, little later. So I think we're on the right track. All right, so thinking about the purpose that God created man is to enjoy God and to render unto God with the logical faculties, with emotions, with a physical body, in relational uh, ways, in, in several of the ways we're going to look at, that there's a corresponding structure or nature that God's going to give man so that he can do this. And it's all for God's glory because he deserves it. It's out of his fullness that he's done all this. So God created man in his image to play this role, to fulfill the purposes God had for him. So that we could, with our lives as sinners, be redeemed so that we could, in a way, sit at God's right hand like the Apostle John did, lean in his bosom, close to Christ, in his embrace, because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence is fullness of joy. And there's no place we'd rather be than in the presence of God, which is our ultimate destiny. All right, so this, this, uh, this motif of the image of God, I'm going to look at it four different stages, basically. The first is man was created in God's image. Being created in God's image, um, in the most plain sense, means that he's like God. Notice how he uses uh, the term in verse 26, uh, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We find in chapter 3, in verse 22, then the Lord said, Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So there was a sense in which he was created and was like God to whatever degree God wanted him to be that way. And after the fall, there was a sense in which he had more knowledge. And God again says that man is like us. And this is kind of puzzling, obviously, because you realize we're talking about the infinite God of the universe. You think about us, and the fact is we're so different than God. What we can, I think, where we have to at least start is to recognize in this creation account that man is more like God than any other created physical being on earth. We could argue that angels are more like God. I think you could argue the opposite as well. But certainly of all physical creatures, man is the most like God. Uh, what are some ways that, that, that man is like God? First, man is functionally like God or functionally similar to God or in God's likeness. We see in this passage that God doesn't just create man like he does a rock. and sits, sits there. Didn't just create, didn't create man like even the skies who, who don't intentionally don't have a mind to declare the glory of God, but they still do. God actually created a man and gave him a job. He commanded the man to fulfill this job, and that was to exercise dominion over the earth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. I don't go fishing much. The last time I went fishing, I didn't have the fish under control. So I guess that's something we'll have to improve on. So we see that there's a functional likeness, just as God rules all the universe, just like he calls all the stars by names, just like he rules man. And after man had filled all the universe, after man had filled all the earth, it says that God works his will among the inhabitants of the earth. That God has plans and purposes, that God has uh, that God works in the hearts of the kings that he raises up the beggars and he, he abases the, uh, those who are in pride against him, that God is very intimately involved in man after they had filled the earth, and I guess in the process too. So just like God exercised dominion over all the earth, in an ultimate sense, God tells man as an under-shepherd sort of, a vice-regent on earth, 
to exercise dominion too. So in this functional sense, we're, we're like God. He didn't command the, uh, the animals to do this. He didn't even command the angels to do this. The angels are pure servants of God that just go about doing whatever he tells them to do. Matter of fact, they're given commission to help us do what we do. In a functional sense, this is the way um, it is. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, notice how he says that uh, there's two elements to the makeup of a human being. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So not only does man have this, uh, this body, this physical body, but he has, also has a soul. Numerous times throughout the scriptures, um, it talks about the spirit of man, the soul of man, and then there's the whole, um, the whole debate whether man is, has three parts or two parts. And from my understanding and from my studies, it seems most consistent with the whole of Scripture that there's two parts, the body and soul. And that when we talk about spirit and soul, they're most often interchangeable. And sometimes they're even repeated as if there's three or more parts of a human for emphasis sake. Like in Mark chapter, I think it's 10, where he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As if there were four parts to man, but that's not substantiated at other places. So there's this emphasis of separating these various aspects of, this, of the soul of man. So he made man as a body, unlike the angels who just are souls, spirits. And he made him different than animals who are just, just bodies without, without souls. Made him both. So man is in this, this functional capacity similar to God. Secondly, man bears a moral likeness to God. We bear a moral likeness to God. Have you ever wondered why in all the, uh, the countries of the world, all the civilizations, all the cultures, there's this, uh, this sense of morality? There's a sense of right and wrong, right? We've heard of this as the moral argument for the existence of God. We have this unspoken, really unaccounted for um, presence of a moral law on the inside of a man that makes him, in group with other people, make rules and try to live by them and feel very offended if people don't live by them and all these sort of things. Feelings of guilt and all these things. Unaccounted for unless you say there was a lawgiver that accounts for that moral law within man. Man has this moral likeness of God because God programmed him that way. In Romans chapter 2, would you look in your Bible there? We read about what we'd now call today the conscience. A principle, a moral principle that God put in all people. Not just those who have come in contact with the written law of God, but all people no matter where they are. Romans chapter 2 verse 14. For when the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, that is, people who don't have access to the written scriptures, when they, who do not have the law, that is, the written law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day of judgment, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. He's actually saying that this consciousness within man is going to be part of what God's going to use as a witness against man in the day of judgment. Because it is, in other words, it's a legitimate witness. God put this moral principle in man. Obviously, God's a moral being. And in, our, in his image, we have this moral likeness. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? They became ashamed. Immediately. They knew they were naked. They went and they hid themselves from God. It wasn't just a physical nakedness. I think they were, that's, they became aware of that, but it was obviously that they were at odds with God and, and estranged from him. Hid themselves. Where are you, Adam? God had to call out. Thirdly, man bears a rational likeness to God. Rational. Just as God logically thinks and speaks all through Scripture, God tells us his thoughts. His thoughts are far higher than our thoughts. Yet in a, a smaller way, we are able to think uh, logically. We have brains that are able to think abstractly and even communicate our thoughts in, in written and spoken forms. Animals don't do that very much um, at all. In a, number four, man bears a spiritual likeness to God. That is, man isn't just aware of the physical realm around him like animals. You know how um, they're, they're aware of sounds and those kind of things. But we have uh, another sense. 
We have a spiritual dimension to our being so that we, we can pray to God who we can't see. You know, no animal is going to, you know, in, engage in intercessory prayer for his brother or sister, but we do that. We commune with God. The spiritual likeness that's beyond the uh, physical realm. Number five, lastly, man bears a relational um, likeness to God. Just as there are relationships within the Trinity, we find that human relationships are supposed to mirror that. None is more clear than uh, the example of marriage, where husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and then wives are called to submit to their husbands as Christ submits to the Father. And so we're to, just as Christ models how a relationship should be like um, in the Father and the Son, the Son's constantly deferring to the Father, the Father to the Son, and ultimately the Son, everything he does is for the glory of the Father, the pleasure of the Father. He would even say his mission on earth was not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him to finish his work. So in these ways, at creation, God made man in his image, made us. And there's a big question, you know, since the fall happened, where are we now? Where are you and I at in this whole image of God thing? I mean, the fall did a lot of bad, right? The scriptures tell us we're dead in trespasses and sins and um, a lot of other scriptures like that. So where are we at? Secondly, as we, we move from creation, the creation account, and we kind of move a little further in scripture, after the fall... Is the image of God still intact? We may carelessly say, well, the image of God was shattered and broken and it's no longer recognizable, it's no longer really relevant. The fact is, just a couple chapters and just a few years into human history, um, in Genesis chapter 9, we find that there's a pronouncement of the death penalty for someone who would kill a fellow human in innocent blood. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 5, it says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It's called justice. For God made man in his own image. Interesting, isn't it? So instead of saying just randomly, well, we, we, we need to make this law because we don't want to have people killing each other, so we need to legislate some extra rule, he says, what's the basis of this, really, what it is sanctity of human life? The basis is that all men are created in God's image. And I use man generically, of course, to mean male and female. There's a biblical basis for that, too. Maybe a side note here in Genesis chapter 5. In verses 1 through 3, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, singular, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So when I speak of man, I speak generically. Um, so after the fall, there is certainly a distortion, as we'll see in a moment. But the image of God is still in force. And we can't go and kill our fellow humans like we may kill an ant walking to our cars or kill a fly or kill a deer or something like that. There's a distortion but not a loss of the image of God in man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul would use this same basis to argue about the... Uh, the ways of proper worship that are fitting in keeping with the rules of husbands being in authority, wives being in submission to that authority, and both of them being in submission to God's authority. First Corinthians chapter 11, you'd think by this time in human history, maybe this whole image thing had faded away, but here it is, 1 Corinthians eleven seven. He says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels or the messengers. Anyway, so, so without getting into that highly debated context, um, context we, we do see that the Apostle Paul is going to use that basic creation principle 
that applies even in the lives of uh, people after the fall. In uh, James chapter 3, keep turning, we realize that this is not just something that applies to murder, but this is something we should think about as we relate to everyone around us. It's not just believers that are made in the image of God. It's, it's all people. James chapter 3, verse 8, says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the what? In the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So here we're just talking about people in general. Um, We bless God with our mouth, and then we curse or we speak spitefully of or to people who are made in the image of God. Again, Christians, this this should define our, our thoughts about ourselves and about everyone around us. We're all made in God's image. There's a sanctity of human life. That's why we, I think we should big time practice even basic civil respect for all humans, no matter what they've done. So certainly, sinful man may be less like God than he was when God created him, just logically, but he still is in God's image. Thirdly, we, we find in Scripture that uh, a third stage to this whole thing, not just creation, not just post-fall, but we find that after God begins applying the work of redemption in the lives of believers, we find that there's actually the work of God restoring that which was lost of that image in man through sanctification. So throughout sanctification, there's a progressive recovering of more and more of God's image. In uh, Romans chapter, chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, the purpose of God. Here he cites as the basis for all things in your life. Literally, if you're a believer, if you love God, that means God's called you according to his purpose. What is his purpose? What is it that God is working everything together for? Is it good on our terms? Is it good by our definition? No, God has already defined what is our ultimate good. And he's purposed all things to work towards that, and that is verse 29. For those for whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. In whom he foreknew and predestinated, then he also called, just like it said in verse 28, according to this purpose. In whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So what is, this, what is the ultimate end of that purpose? Everything in your life is working towards that. That is incredible. It's not like God kind of zaps us and we become more like Christ and then zaps us some more and we become more like Christ. Everything in our lives, not just the Word, not just the sanctification by the Word as we're going to see in a moment, but literally all things work together for our good according to this purpose. Certainly we wouldn't say it's not according to a purpose. And if it is according to purpose, what greater purpose is there than the one mentioned in this context to make us conform to the image of God's dear son that's an amazing thought so the hard day at work so that uh you know struggling to pay the bills so that not knowing where you're going to live glad to hear you got an apartment and a job and those kind of little things in life that aren't little at all but are huge um physical ailments and, and maybe terminal illnesses all these things are included in our lives by God for the purpose, not just working out some good, but the good of being more like Christ, which is our ultimate good. This idea of us being made more like Jesus in his image is in several places in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, We can see in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, as he's telling us to uh, put off certain things, to put on other things, to put to death certain desires, in tendencies that we have in our fallenness. Verse 5, for example, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, that is earthly. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, 
which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So this is part of what a Christian is to do. We're to mortify, we're to put to death, we're to kill the desires that naturally come to us, all of those, and to yield ourselves to a new set of desires that God is producing. Remember, we're supposed to work out our salvation because God who is working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We're to yield to what we know is right, what God has told us is right, what we actually in our hearts desire to do. And we're to yield to that as part of this process of actually being renewed in knowledge after the image of him that first created us. Taking us all the way back to creation and to God's the functional way that we the jobs we were given on earth to subdue it for the glory of God, and also this job of relating to God with worship. Not only here, we can go to, uh, well, if we go to Romans chapter 12, really popular passage, it picks up on this, this same thought. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, In view of the mercies of God, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, which literally means to to turn yourself in for service, to report for duty. You present your bodies as soldiers, as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Remember, conformity. Here's an idea we're immediately being brought to. Here's here's an object and here's us, and don't be conformed to that, which is the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are going to be conformed to something every day. It can be what we see on TV or what, we, what social expectations of us, expectations of parents or family members or coworkers. And I mention those because all those have been in my life. We have all these different people wanting us to be a certain thing. What are we going to be conformed to? Really. Obviously the Apostle Paul's concern was that we discern what is pleasing to God, what is God's will, what is acceptable, perfect to God. And it occurs by us being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice he didn't just say, don't be conformed to the world, but be conformed by renewing your mind. He says transform, which gives us a little insight into the way that God is conforming us to Christ. It's not just by taking what's there and shaping it, almost bending it and stuff. He's actually producing in us, recovering the image of God within us. So that it's not us just changing, but it's us changing in, in uh, you know, outward conformity or even conformity of thought, but it's us rising, I would say, changing the quality of our character, changing the quality of our nature. It's a, it's a transformation as opposed to confirmation. We've seen another passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22. Verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ. He rebukes them for being sensual and greedy and pure. You didn't learn that from Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Created at, so that as there was a, and on creation week there was a creation of man in God's image, there's now by the Holy Spirit a recovery, right? A recreation. Think about how many of the words talking about redemption, and this is one, talking about salvation in terms of this bringing something back, recovering something. The, the Latin prefix re or re 
means to bend back. So it's pointing us back to the origin. So redemption, regenerate, giving a new life, reconcile, uh, rebirth, resurrection. All these different words are, are, are suggesting that there's something original that God wants to restore. Here again, he's creating us in this likeness. That's exciting because, I mean, this is happening every single day. There's never a point in time where God, you know, God doesn't waste days. He didn't waste time. Every day he, he knows our, our, every time we stand up and sit down, he knows the hairs on our head, which are fewer right now than were this morning. He knows all these things, right, um, about us. Of course he's utilizing every moment of our lives, every situation, every conversation, in ways that be far beyond what we could imagine. And he's doing this in us. He's producing this in us by his Holy Spirit to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, being created, recreated after the likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness. And then one last passage concerning this. 2 Corinthians, and this is kind of the king of them all. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Before we go on, I'm just going to ask you to shout out some answers. What are some ways that God is sanctifying us? And I mean like categories, not like my car breaking down, but something like categorically from the scriptures, what are things in our lives that sanctify us? Okay, exposure to the word of God in the scriptures. Absolutely. The Spirit? Absolutely. Prayer? Christian spiritual disciplines? There's several. Another one we could use is uh, is suffering, obviously. He knows the way he knows the way that I've taken, and when he's tried me sufficiently, I'll come forth as gold. And is a big one. So the scriptures, the spirit, suffering, spiritual disciplines, all of them start with an S. Sounds like a sermon. Um, so this process of sanctification we see in Second Corinthians chapter three here, um, toward the latter part. As he's arguing through this, this is just an amazing passage. The Apostle Paul is talking about being ministers of the New Covenant, not of the Old Covenant. And uh, what's so special about the New Covenant is, be- is that the New Covenant, and God bringing it in force, God bringing it in, bringing the kingdom in, is that God's doing it personally, by the Holy Spirit, through the Word. So that it's not a letter that kills. It's not just thou shalt not, or thou shalt, with no help, how are you going to do this with no incentive on the level of our desires? No promises, really. There's some promises, but not nearly as glorious as the ones in the New Covenant. Here, God is personally going to fulfill all of the promises of the New Covenant in and on our behalf. In us and on our behalf. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He's comparing... Moses wearing a veil. There was this, this stark separation between the people, Moses the intermediate figure, and then God. He says, in Christ, God has removed the veil. Now we have access to God. He says, turns to God, the veil is removed. Now the Lord, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what would keep you from knowing God. And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, here's our word again, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is what God is doing. This is what sanctification is. Sanctification isn't me learning how to be a better Christian. And that's some aspect of it. But I certainly didn't tell the whole story. And it's actually not the most, most of the story. The most of the story is that it's God fulfilling the conditions and the promises and the stipulations of the new covenant 
to write his law in our hearts, to turn our hearts toward him so that we won't depart from his ways, giving us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, never ceasing to be our God, bringing us into a covenant relationship. We will never cease to be his people, being his sons and daughters. This is what God is doing. And so we, as we with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, the, the, different, the, the, the impact it has on us is that we are transformed into that same image. That's amazing. And that's, what's amazing about this is, is that I would expect it to say, as we view the glory of the Lord, and of course he's pointing us back to Sinai. Remember that when Moses went up there and saw the glory of God and um, his face, he came down and his face was glowing and all that. Uh, and if anyone even got close to the mountain, they'd be, they'd be killed, right? Thrust through the dark. And even animals. Um, so we have this access to God first off we don't have this veil on our face Moses had to put a veil on his face lest he die we don't have to look at it we, we're better off than Moses we can actually behold the glory of God and as we see it we don't just respond we don't just rejoice but we are recreated or refashioned from one degree of glory to the other being transformed into the same image of course, that's exactly in keeping with everything we're saying. This is what God is doing. Renewing us in the image of his son. The reason for which he predestined us. Now, if we continue in chapter 4, it gets really exciting. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, Paul speaking for himself, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So he just now tells us what that glory was back there in verse 18 of chapter 3. The glory we're looking at with unveiled face is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. In their case, the God of this world blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, where is he going to take us back to? His, Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's so much in this. This is, this is just an amazing passage. But one thing we do get out of this is that it's the Apostle Paul was given a ministry to preach the gospel of Christ, not the, not the gospel of Paul, not preaching himself, so that people, as they hear the gospel, the Lord who is that spirit, joined with the word, changes us into that very glorious image that we are looking at and rejoicing in. That's sanctification for you. All right, lastly, we think about where, where this whole idea maybe ends, ultimates, and that is the glorification. Begins at creation, sort of lost after the fall, but still kept intact. It's recovered throughout sanctification, but not fully until glorification at Christ's return. The image of God will be fully restored. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's look at about verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of who? Christ. This is Adam represented us before God and we fell in him and we're lost. Christ represented us before God and we are righteous because of him. Where was that? The first man, Adam, became a living being. This last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 46. But it is not the spirit, the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are the, those who are of heaven. Verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of earth, of the dust, 
We all. We all look like Adam. We all act like Adam. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is like some really intense logic going on here throughout this whole chapter. He's arguing for believers, two believers, who think that the resurrection has already passed. He's presenting one argument after the other, saying the resurrection of our bodies is going to happen. It's not something that passed. It was not something that just when Jesus rose, there were other people that rose. The resurrection is something that's future. All men are going to be raised, some to everlasting destruction, some to everlasting life. And the image that we will be changed into is going to be the image of Jesus Christ, the man from heaven. Just as Christ rose and is the first fruit of those who rise from the dead, his very resurrection was the guarantee that all those in him, just like all those in Adam would die, all those in him would be raised and actually be changed into his image, bearing his image and likeness, just like Seth and Abel and Cain bore the image of their father, Adam. At this glorification, that is when Christ comes back, we will be glorified and made like Jesus Christ. Now this, this is really incredible. The fact that we're going to be made like Jesus. Not just that we're going to be restored to the image of Adam. You notice there's a difference there? I mean, you think maybe so far we could, we could deduce from what we said that, well, God created man in his image. A little bit was lost. Sanctification restores all that. Glorification, it's all, there, it's all back, right? We're back in the Garden of Eden. The fact is, we're better off being in Christ when Christ comes back than Adam was before he sinned. There's going to be a greater glory revealed in us, and even the image that we bear is not going to be an earthly image like Adam. We're going to be made into the image of Jesus Christ, the man of heaven. It's going to be even better. Especially since we realize that Jesus, in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, is said to be the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1, 3, the exact representation of God's person. And we're going to be made into the image of Christ. Now again, we're not going to be made perfectly, we're not going to be made into Christ. We're still going to be an image of him, right? So we're not going to be equal with Christ in power and glory and everything. The angels won't be bowing to us. We'll be worshiping them along with them, worshiping Jesus, throwing our crowns at his feet. And yet, if we just think about it, the fact that we're going to be even close, the fact that we're going to be in the image of it, all of us have picture frames of the house and filled with pictures, hopefully, and portraits. And you can say on one hand that the portrait is very much like the person that it's supposed to be the image of, right? right? And yet it's, it's a far cry. I mean, it's made out of paper, and it it's just kind of looks that way. The image is never as real or as special as the actual object that it's an image of. And yet that image of that, of that person on your dining room table or on the wall is much more like that person than maybe a picture of a frog or even a picture of Adam. The the fact is we are not going to be the substance Christ. We're not going to be the fourth person of the Trinity or something, the bride, you know. Um, But we are going to be in his image, and he he himself is so glorious that what a privilege to be even in his image. We're going to turn to 1 John chapter 3, and we'll be done. 1 John chapter 3. What a privilege to be made like in the image of Christ. Read the Gospels and we're just blown away at the person of Christ. Blown away at his wisdom. Blown away at how he sees through the, the, the fleeting values of this world. The emphasis we put on physical things. He sees through pride. He sees through hypocrisy. He sees through the, the maybe crusty exterior of real bad sinners, and he actually loves them and welcomes them to himself. To, to be like Jesus, there's nothing greater to be or to do than to be and to act like Christ. That is just, that's the fact. And God thinks so too. That's why he's going to make us like him. First John, chapter 3, verse 1. I want, to, I want us to marvel. If you, if you leave here without marveling in this, I've wasted my time. You've wasted, wasted your time. See, verse 1, see what kind of love. We're not talking about this abstract idea that God's doing. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God, the offspring of God. That we should be called the offspring of God. 
And so, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now in covenant and uh, having been adopted by the Holy Spirit. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Now, don't miss this. This is the Apostle John, not Paul. Love how the Bible speaks. The Apostle John, using the exact same logic the Apostle Paul used in 2 Corinthians 3.18, notice how he says, we shall be like Him, not just because He's going to change us that way, because we're going to see Him as He is. In other words, that final vision of the glory of God, in a sense, that final perfect face-to-face vision of Jesus Christ in the blink of an eye is going to change us into that image. We're going to see him as he is and we'll be like him, just like that. Talk about a vision of glory. What a hope. And the conclusion is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as Christ is pure. Wow, what love. Is that your response to all this? If it's not, it's probably half my fault, half your fault. Is that our response to us thinking about God creating man to be functionally representative of God on earth and to relate to God so that we can actually worship him and subdue like him and forgive like him and love like him and relate to people like him and think like him? When we come to the New Testament, we find, well, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit's doing. It's repairing our relationships. It's repairing um, our thought, our minds, thought processes. It's, it's repairing our hearts so that out of our hearts don't proceed forth evil things, but good things. All this is because God loves us. This covenant love that doesn't just try to do things or offer us things, but actually gets stuff done. This sovereign God of the universe who created man out of his fullness also saves man out of his fullness, and he saves him so fully that he actually makes him like his son, who is, who is his beloved son. And now we are fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, being not the son of God, but being fellow sons and daughters of God. Secondary sense there. But oh, how wonderful. We're going to see Christ like he is. And we're going to be made like him in the moment, in a, in a twinkling of an eye. We'll be changed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, the world does not know us. That was my experience today, Lord. It doesn't understand us because it doesn't know you, Father. And the only reason we can have this hope within us right now is because you have first, in love, reached down to us and started the process of recovering that broken image. Father, we can't wait until it's full. Father, help us to respond to this by marveling at your love, marveling at your purpose, marveling marveling at our future in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.